let's talk stock talk welcome again to scott talk in this episode i'm talking with tracy Wynn, author of storefront hell in a small place tracy how are you today I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Tracy has written this book based on her experiences and involvement in what she calls a spiritual or church cult. Tracy, I read your very interesting book, Storefront Hell in a Small Place, and you were under the influence of Bishop Kerry Davis for about a four-year period you wrote. It must have been a challenge for you to write this book. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it, it was. It was very challenging. What was, um, was it challenging because of uh, the personalities involved or your inner feelings? What, what made it challenging to write? All the above. Um, mostly I was just wrestling with myself about it. I was, I was still trying to come to terms with what happened when I um, started writing the book and you know, I just wasn't sure if I wanted to just put all of it out there because it was such an embarrassing situation. I'm just so embarrassed that I failed for anything like that and something like that happened to me. And I kind of just wanted to bury it and just pretend it didn't happen, but I couldn't and I needed healing. And so it became therapy for me. And then on the other hand, I was nervous about people that were, you know, around that were involved people that I still might run into in my city and might feel some type of way about me having wrote this book. Even though I changed the names, you know, I know they would still be able to tell it was them. And I was just nervous about that. I'm like, how are people going to respond? Did you get many negative responses when people read it? No, actually, I had a lot of positive support. A lot of people came to me. Even some people that I was very surprised had read it. And, you know, they were asking me questions like, is this so-and-so? And I and I was honest. I said, yes, that's them. And um, they were just like, wow, I didn't know this happened. I knew something was going on with y'all, but I didn't know it was that deep. And, you know, they were just shocked, but very supportive. Um, just one person had a negative reaction, but he... he hasn't said anything to me about it. He says something to another person about it, but he hasn't come to me. But he he didn't deny what happened. He just was just upset that I actually put it out there. But I'm just like, well, I didn't call your name, so just be grateful for that. <laughs> the bishop was apparently a very persuasive and manipulative person from what I read. Yes. He was. Yes. He was very manipulative. Oh my goodness! Yes. Were his parents involved he could, he in the could church? Talk anybody? His parents were they involved in the church? Yes. Uh, his mom was a member of the church, but not his dad. And so, um, his mom was the one. She was just very, very religious. She's the one that always took him to church as a child and everything. His dad wasn't really into it. He would come in sometimes, but mostly he would just drive her there and stay outside in the car. You know, he didn't even want to come in and be in the service. I think because he knew the behind the scenes and he was just like, I don't want to get caught up in anything like that, you know. But the mom, she was heavily involved. She was one of the pastors at the church. 
I saw that near the end of the book where she uh, mm-hmm. tried to take charge. Yes, yes. And that's that's how um, the church finally ended after she um, took she tried to take over. I guess you could say. So, what age were you when you met the bishop and, and started getting involved? I was twenty two. Twenty two. I was twenty two. Yeah. And you were still in school, in college. Mm-hmm. I was still still in college. I was at UAB, and um, I was just going through some rough things there. And, and that's the thing. He, he caught me at a, a very vulnerable moment. And I, I just, I needed something. I, I was just, I was lost, you know. And I'm like, I need, I need something. I need different people around me. And so when I got close to them, I'm like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Because they were really like a family to me. We, we did everything together. And I'm like, this is what I need. And I didn't realize, you know, that I had been caught up in something. You, so you were in Birmingham, and the church, his church at the time, was in Atlanta. Yes. So you met someone from Atlanta that introduced you to him in the church. Yeah, actually, um, my god sister, she was she was living in Huntsville, and she was riding with a lady from work to Atlanta to attend these services, and finally she convinced me to come visit. And so then, then I was driving from Birmingham, and they were driving from Huntsville. But they eventually moved there, and I didn't make the move. So I was just—I was doing a lot of driving. I see. So, so when you met the bishop, about what age was he? He was uh, about twenty-eight, I believe. He wasn't—he wasn't too much older. Um, most of the people in the church were in their like late teens or twenties. Okay, okay. Um, did, did his church have a governing body at all? No, not at all. So he, he was the head, was totally and... out there on his own. Yes, it it he was like it was like a dictatorship. He, he wouldn't answer to, to anybody. Now it was older pastors that came to him and was like, "Do you need a mentor? You know, or do you need our organization to cover you?" And he didn't want that because he didn't want anybody telling him anything. You you couldn't tell him anything. He didn't want to be corrected, so he was just out there on his own. What name did the church go by? Oh, in the beginning it was Power of Deliverance Worship Center, mm-hmm. and then. Um, he changed the name to Higher Dimensions Deliverance Church. Okay. The cover of your book is pretty interesting because the banner over the front door reads, Release Your Mind to M.E.Ministries. Now, was that a real banner or was that just something that you felt needed to be put out there? Actually, uh my graphic designer, he did that. I didn't even know he was going to put that there. And when I saw it, I was like, yes. Because I'm like, that's exactly what you do in some of these places. You, They want you to check your mind at the door and, you know, come on in and be a zombie, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and not have any, any thoughts of your own. So, and he said, that's what he gathered from reading the book. You know, you know, I, I want you to release your mind to me. So he put that on the banner, and I love that. <laughs> I like that also. I just wasn't sure if it was real, but even if it wasn't, I said, that's that's pretty close to what I've been reading. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, 
Once again, I'm having a conversation with Tracy Wynn, author of Storefront, Hell in a Small Place. How did you come up with Hell in a Small Place, Tracy? I didn't come up with that either. My dad did. <laughs> really? Yeah. Now, um, with Storefront, now we, we came up with that together because I was just like, what can just sum up this experience? And we were like, well, you know, we, we always had church in a storefront. And a lot of the other churches that were like us, they met in storefronts as well. And so not that some of these, you know, regular traditional church buildings can't be like what I went through. But I just noticed that a lot of the times we'd be meeting in like these random places. And so that's where storefront came from. And then dad was like, and it was hell in a small place. And I said, it sure was. I'm going to put that on the top. <laughs> he was like, hey, we were like, that just fits. It just fits. It fits. You're right, it fits. So I give credit to my dad, Terrace Wynn Jr. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> now, Tracy, according to your book, you felt like you were part of a cult. How would you describe a cult? Uh, to me, a, a cult is centered around um, a figure, which you know would be the pastor, the leader of the, the church or the organization, because it, it doesn't have to just be church. I felt like I was in a cult when I sold Mary Kay. You know, so, you know, it, it could be any type of organization. I feel like when you lift someone up, like in a God-like way, and you make that person or that organization an idol, you, you to me, that's, that's a cult. When that's all you want to do, all you want to talk about, mm-hmm. and you're trying to get other people involved in it too, recruiting and you know to me that's a cult did others see it that way that were involved some others see it that way too yeah um i i spoke to some of the the other former members after my book came out and they were all just like oh we're so glad you told it you know because they didn't even some of them didn't even know what to do with what happened a lot of them just kind of pushed it down and just and moved on because they just didn't even know how to to even start unpacking that. Because um, everybody that was there had different experiences. Now, the closer you were to the pastor, the more you went through. Because it was some people that really didn't see a lot of that. Because they either weren't there long enough. Or they didn't get as close to him as other people did. And so to them, they were just coming to church and going home. And they didn't really realize the behind the scene. But because I was one of the ministers... I was in the inner circle, and and I saw behind the curtain, you know. A lot of abuse? Yes, yes. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial, whatever you think of. It, it was abusive, toxic environment. Like, with him actually putting his hands on some people, you know. Well, you lightly mentioned, you know, when you think of cults, um especially uh, religious cults of that type, uh, you think of sacrifices and mm-hmm. you think of, of uh, sexual situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and, and you lightly touched on that, but was some of that involved also? Yeah, I, and I, I like the word lightly <laughs> that you use because I tried to write in a way where I didn't have to come out and say some things I just wanted the reader to read between the lines of what I was saying, you know, 
because it, it definitely was that it it was um it was some some sexual things going on and uh nothing that I was involved with but the, these are things that I was told after after everything had happened you know it, it was just crazy how just this book unlocked so much people were calling me texting me messaging me you know hey I want to talk to you and then they were telling me things and I'm like, I didn't know that was going on. And I was right there, you know? So that's why I said, you know, we all had different experiences. And I, and I noticed that uh, in reading also that he would uh, pit one person against another, uh, mm-hmm. you against Always. your friends and, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So in doing that, <clears throat> did that have a lot to do with um, I'm attracted to her now and not her? Was he switching like that? No, I mean, he might be messing with a few people at one time. The The thing was, he had to uh, keep us divided, by all means. Because if we united and started really talking about what was going on, that was going to be a problem for him. He would lose his church. And so he he never liked... I mean, we had times. We had a lot of fun. We got along. But it was just short-lived. <laughs> you know, We might have a good evening out. And then the very next day, it's some kind of drama, you know. And and most most of the time, it was orchestrated by him on purpose because he, you know, he, he just didn't like everybody getting along. He believed in, in uh, divide and conquer. Yes, yes, that's that's exactly it. Did he? Did because he... I went into the church with my best friend, and he he broke up our friendship. Uh, thank God, we were able to recover it. And reconcile once he passed, but he he did not want us being cool. He he kept us against each other always. It was always something. Why? What was the purpose of that? He he didn't he didn't want us to to start comparing notes and things, and you know he was just scared we might we might get somewhere and start talking about. He didn't. He didn't ever like anybody being alone with another person from the church or other people from the church. It, it was he always had to be with us. Always, we had to be doing something with him. He didn't. He didn't like people being off on their own or being around their families or anything like that. He turned. He turned uh, members of the church against their families. Yes. Yes. People. People left. Left to to uh, move wherever he was moving and you know it was a, a group like I said the the inner circle of ministers they everywhere he moved that's that's where they were moving they were with with him all the time and they left they left their families for him and he he didn't he didn't like you having strong family ties and he you know he even did that with me and my parents he was always Telling me, you know, we're your family. We're the ones that care about you. We're the ones that support you. Your parents don't even support what what you're doing in ministry. They don't love you like we do. Just tell me a bunch of lies and craziness, because he couldn't stand that my parents cared about me. He couldn't stand it. Did he ever speak of immortality? No, mm-mm. not not that I can recall. Did you ever feel like uh, you were in danger? Uh, not just that one time where I wrote about the phone throwing incident. That night, I saw something else because 
I had seen him be like that with other people, you know, the yelling and cussing and throwing stuff or putting his hands on people. But when he threw that phone at me, I'm just like, whoa, what what are we doing here? You know, we're in the church office. I'm like, you're throwing stuff at me, you're yelling at me. And um I I was that night I did. I felt in danger because I'm just like, he'll throw something at me, he might just put his hands on me. Was that and because of something you said? Like it didn't happen. Yeah, I, I said, yes, sir. And it, it triggered something. He felt like I was being smart. But I was just, I was just done that evening. He he had been picking with me like all that weekend. And I can't even remember what we got into it about. It was a flyer or something. And he, he was just making a big deal out of nothing as usual. And um, why he, after he said what he had to say, you know, that that was what he taught us. You just say, yes, sir, no, sir. And I said, okay, yes, sir. And then he just started yelling, I'm not scared of you. It, maybe he was upset because I was so calm and I, I didn't seem to be scared. On the inside, I was. But I was, I was just tired. I'm like, can I go home? <laughs> and he took it as something else and he just exploded. So, I don't know. Well, you, you wrote that you and the bishop were so close at one time. That he appointed yes. you first lady of the church, which you mm -hmm. graciously accept, accepted. But then mm -hmm. he turned on you. Now, was that because he saw someone else that he desired? Or what, what would make him turn on you and say, you're not the first lady any longer? I don't know. Because, you know, you never you never knew why he did the things he did. He, I mean, he'd get, a, he'd get upset about something at the drop of a hat. Maybe you brought him the wrong water or gum or something, and he's just like, okay, I'm not dealing with you anymore. Forget you. So, you know, to this day, excuse me, to this day, I don't I don't know what made him turn like that. But then, even after we decided to just be pastor and member and, and friends, we were friends, he, he still would have these times where he'd come back and say, you know, what... What if we we do get together, or you know, do you still have feelings for me? And you know, he stringed me along like that. But then it got to a point where it didn't even move me anymore. I'm just like, I don't even like you like that anymore, and that really made him mad. But he was dealing with all these other people, so I didn't understand why, you know, he was so hung up on me. But yeah, we we were we were talking at, at one time. And then he just, just switched it up. <laughs> okay, you also wrote that he accused you, or someone accused you, of being lesbian. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? He accused, he accused me and my best friend. I don't know where that started, but um, he just he called him and the assistant pastor called me out in the service and... Well, they didn't, they called me out without saying my name. They didn't call any names, but everybody knew they were talking about me and my best friend. And so she wasn't in there yet. She was still out in the car. So I was in there by myself and they were just like, we're not going to tolerate lesbians in this church, especially if you call yourself a minister and all this. And then they, they made me come get prayed for. And she called herself casting demons out of me. 
and casting out that lesbian spirit. And I'm like, I am not a lesbian, man. Can you get your hands off of me? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they, because me, you know, like I said, I think that was just another tactic uh, of division for real. So he caused a big rift between you and your best friend. Yes. For a long time? Yes. Mm-hmm. It was um, almost the whole time we were there. You know, we we would go, we would be off and on. We would be cool, and as soon as we were cool again, he would start something up between us again, and then we go our separate ways. But we came back together uh, actually the the day he um, transitioned. That's when we came back together, because you know we we didn't have anybody at that point but each other and God, so. You know. So, what happened to, as far as you know, what happened to all the offerings and the money collected for the church? Uh, where did all that go? Um, in his pocket, on his body, on his feet, <laughs> on his hands, <laughs> his wrist. <laughs> it was pretty. It was pretty visible, huh? Yeah, like he was. He was, you know, every time we turn around, he'd be saying we needed money, but then he'd pop up with these new expensive suits and shoes, but his rent wasn't even paid. And I'm just like, you can at least stole the money and paid your rent, you know, (laughs) put gas in your car. But he would always just blow it on, like, you know, eating at expensive restaurants and stuff like that. So that caused a lot of... He didn't have gas in his car. Oh, really? (laughs) That caused a lot of moving around from building to building? Yes. Yes, he he moved a lot, and the church moved a lot just because of uh, not paying the rent. And he always told us that um, you can stay in a place three months before they will put you out for not paying. And so we knew wherever he moved or wherever the church moved, we we were going to be at that place probably about two or three months, and then we would expect to be moving again. Did the church ever do any outreach at all? He called it outreach, but it was um, re- recruiting and and gaining more money. Like he called he called it gleaning, mm-hmm. and so uh, it was just us standing on the side of the road with buckets, begging for money, and hoping people would, you know, give us money and things. And then he would come and pick pick up the money from us like a pimp. Had us standing out there for real, <laughs> like a pimp. Did you notice other other churches operating in a similar way at all? Uh-uh. No. And I did not want to do that. For one, to me it was embarrassing. Because, you know, I would see... It's a church here in Huntsville that does that. And to this day, they do it. They, they stand out with buckets. And I always thought they looked a little shady. I don't know anything about this church. But I'm saying, to me, it looked a little shady. So then next day I know I'm standing out there with a bucket and I felt like I looked like them to people. And because we had a sign on the bucket that said what the money was going to, but none of that stuff existed. We didn't have a daycare. We didn't have a food pantry. And so I'm like, you know, we're out here lying just to get people to donate money. And so that, you know, I didn't, I didn't like feeling like that or looking like that. I just thought there had to be a better way. And he, 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 he to the church moved from Atlanta. 
mm-hmm. to uh, Huntsville, Alabama, and then over mm-hmm. to the Muscle Shoals area in yes. Alabama. Um, was that because of, of finances or was he on the run or what, what caused all that movement? Uh, yeah, at that time he was, um, he was running from the police and um, his parents, they had a house fight. And so uh, we were going down there to, you know, be, be with them and support them. And then he ended up getting put out of his place and had to move in to um, the apartment that they were moving into after the fire. And so him and the assistant pastor lived with his parents. And so since they were down there for an extended time, we just started having church down there. But the last place we were at having church was Decatur. Ah. That's where we were when everything went down. Okay. And he got he got very sick. Yes. But he was still a young man, wasn't he? Yes, he was 32 when he died. 32. 32. Yes. Mhm. Unexpectedly. Mhm. I mean, it was literally, you know, we're we're talking and it's like, "Okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow because we talk like every day." And then I didn't know that when I was hanging up, that was it, you know. I didn't know. Once again, I'm talking with Tracy Wynn, author of Storefront, Hell in a Small Place, where she speaks about being a part of a Christian cult. Tracy, you have um, mostly recovered from this experience emotionally. Oh, yes, yes, because I I can actually talk about it now and not... uh, just burst into tears. It used to be very, very hard to talk about or even think about it. That's that's why I decided to go get therapy because I'd be at work and a memory would come in my mind and I had to be like, oh, excuse me, and go to the bathroom. And I'd be sitting in the bathroom crying and just trying to get myself together. I just I would just fall apart just thinking about it because it, it, was, it was so much that I suppressed while I was in the midst of that. And so once me and my sister, we started talking about what we really went. That's my best friend. And um, once we started talking about what really happened, because at first she was in denial. When I first tried to talk to her about it, she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and I was like, "You, all the stuff we went through, you go act like it. But she was just so scared to even acknowledge it. We were scared of him. Even mm. after he died, we were scared. And so... Finally, one day, it, the floodgates just opened, and we talked for hours. Everything was just coming out. She was telling me things that I didn't even know had happened, things wow. that had happened to her, and I didn't even know. And so, um, you know, <laughs> was she ever it, was she ever named as first lady by him? Like you? No, were? no, she was his daughter because she she always wanted a dad, and so. His thing was, I'll be whatever this person needs me to be. You know, whether they need a husband, a friend, a dad. And so it was a few people in the ministry that really looked at him like their father. And they called him dad because they didn't have their dads in their lives. And so that that's what made it really painful for her because she's like, okay, I let my guard down and really let this person in and considered him my dad. And he hurts me. And so it it was very painful for her. Interesting. Um, Tracy, you're married now, correct? Yes. 
And you're a member of another church? I'm not a member. I attend. I attend uh, my husband's church. So you're very leery of getting too involved uh-huh. in the church right now? Yes. Yes. Still. I, um, <laughs> I'm always so scared that I, I'm going to be so weird. Somebody will ask me to do something because even after I left the, this particular church where I had the bad experience, I went to two more churches. Uh, me and my sister, we were at these churches together too. And we, we went through some hard things there. It wasn't a cult, but we were, we were on the borderline. It was, it was some toxic behavior. And so, um, I just, I'm always like, I don't want anybody to know I have any gifts or anything because I don't want you to ask me to do anything because if I get too involved, then I have to go back behind the curtain and I'm going to see something different than what I'm seeing on Sundays. So I'm like, you know, ignorance is bliss and I'm just better off not knowing. So if something is going on, just let me be far away from it, you know? I understand. So that that's where I am now. At the end of your book, you you write 10 signs of cultural spiritual abuse, which I'm going to read read off now. If there's one you want to expound on, just go ahead, okay? Okay. The first sign of spiritual abuse is love bombing, which which you say is, in the beginning, everyone feels very loved because all this love is flowing. And then once they become members and and get used to everyone and start putting in money, then that that kind of wanes. They kind of get pushed aside a little bit. That's love bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Isolation, which you mentioned, and division, which apparently was was a big deal. Uh, isolating people from their friends and family. Uh, the third part uh, is manipulation, which, of course, is always important. Um, the fourth warning is leader worship. And we do tend to worship our leaders. Yes, we do. Especially spiritually. Yes. Fifth warning is don't ask, don't talk. Now, mm-hmm. most pastors won't won't adhere to that philosophy, but I guess if it's an, if it's a cult, they have to. Yes. Uh, the sixth warning is us versus them, and the seventh is disfellowship. What do you mean by disfellowship? That's that's what somebody is um, kicked out or banned from the church. Or they might be banned for a period. Like uh, one sister, she got into trouble and uh, she did something the pastor didn't like. And so it for she wasn't allowed to come around for a while. And she was gone for like weeks. And during that period, we basically had to act like she was dead. We couldn't contact her. We were told um, not to call her, text her, not to hang out with her. And, you know, just basically treat her like she didn't exist until him and her were okay again. And once once they reconciled and she repented to the church, she had to get up in front of the church and repent to everybody. Then it was okay for us to be in fellowship with her again. Interesting. But if she hadn't been allowed to come back, we would not have any dealings with her. Now, he would still have contact with people after they left because he's him. (laughs) But he didn't want us having any contact with people after they left. And when he found out that there was contact, it was was always a 
very bad reaction from him. Okay. Um, your eighth warning is recruitment. Um, mm-hmm. Your ninth is false doctrine. Your ninth warning is false doctrine. Um, you say controlling pastors will keep members in line with fear through false doctrine. Mm-hmm. False doctrine meaning he takes a part of the word and and makes it suit himself. Yeah, just um, just making it like every little thing is going to send you to hell. I mean, any little thing. He he he. Every day we were just so in fear that that we were losing our salvation. And he 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 had we just we lived in fear. That's I I was fearful every day of my life. Hmm. Well, you say one of his favorite sayings was, "Y'all are gonna bust hell wide open." Yes. Now, when when would he say that? Uh, at church, everyday conversation. <laughs> it just uh, any, any little thing that you did. Now he could do whatever he wanted. He could mm-hmm. watch whatever he wanted, or you know. But if he found out you were watching something that he didn't feel was appropriate, you just gonna bust hell wide open, and you call yourself a minister, and you know, it just make you feel so guilty. Every little thing went back to, and you call yourself this and that, but you ain't no woman of God, you ain't no man of God. You just gonna bust hell wide open, and I mean any little thing, any little thing, you were going to hell. <laughs> but it's on, on one hand, he would claim that he didn't believe that because he he said he came from a church where they made you feel like uh, as a woman, if you wore pants, that was going to send you to hell. And he's like, I won't ever be like that. You know, they're they just religious. And but then he turned around, and did the same stuff because we were like that. We, we had to dress a certain way. He mm-hmm. acted like he didn't care about those things. But he really did. We every time we were going to do anything, he would tell us what to put on, what color we was wearing that day. We always we had to wear stockings. If you came out the house without your stockings, especially as a a, a minister, oh, you were gonna get it. Wow. So you were always in fear of not yes. passing, of not satisfying him. Yeah, we we were more afraid of him than God. I, sometimes I would pray to God and say, Lord, you know, please, please don't let Bishop get mad at me today. And don't don't let him find out this or that. Even I was scared one day. I was listening to an old Motown tape in the car, listening to The Temptations. And I was like, Lord, please don't let Bishop find out that I listened to The Temptations today. I don't want to get yelled at. You know, Motown. <laughs> Nothing to be afraid like, of, crazy. right? Yes, I'm sitting up here scared to listen to Motown. <laughs> and Motown was mostly about love. Exactly, very clean music. So it was crazy. Well, your tenth warning is moving the church, moving and changing uh-huh. the name constantly. So that's a that's a big uh-huh. warning. Yes, because I I see that a lot. Even now, I've, I've seen some places. Seem like every time I look up. They're in a new location or they've got a new name, another set of members. That's another thing, a revolving door of members. You know, it it just, it, it looked a little sketchy. But that's that's how it was with us, just a lot of moving around. I'd have people visit and then maybe in two Sundays, they're like, hey, I want to come back to your church. 
Like, well, we're not there anymore. We're at this other place. <laughs> a lot of a lot of hotels. <laughs> a lot of hotel uh, church meetings. Mm-hmm. Even when when he passed, he he still owed many hotels in Huntsville money. Once again, I'm talking with Tracy Wynn, author of Storefront, Hell in a Small Place. Tracy, it's good to hear that you uh, pretty much recovered from that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me, Tracy, and this may be a little tough for you, in three words, describe yourself. Uh, Strong, driven, gifted. Great three words. Sounds like you have more, but we'll stop right there. <laughs> that's good. You recovered. So that's that's very good. Um, Tracy, listen, it's been a great conversation with you. Thank you so much for your time. Same here. Thank you Thank for allowing you. me to. You're welcome. Thank you for allowing me to read your book. And uh, I've told other people about it. Tracy can be found. Her Thank book you. can be found um, online, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Tracy is an acting coach. She's a speaker. And uh, if you get a chance, please take her book and read it. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much. You're on Scott Talk, and we've been visiting with Tracy Wynn, author of Storefront, Hell in a Small Place. Thank you for visiting, and we hope you'll come back soon. Let's talk, Scott Talk.